this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. So how do you figure out when's the right time to sell your business? You know, when you start off, you've got nothing, right? So so you're not risking a whole lot. But if your business goes on to be successful and worth something, every day you stay on as founder, CEO, and shareholder, you are risking essentially that portion of your wealth. And my next guest, Peter Kelly, realized that. He built his business up to over $100 million in revenue and knew that at some point, he needed to take some chips off the table. And when the opportunity presented itself to sell, he just did exactly that. So he's going to tell you the story in all of its glory. Uh, He'll talk about how to raise money from venture capitalists, how to manage a board, if that's what you've got. He'll talk about that calculus around when and if to sell. Also, the the whole idea of what you're going to do after you sell. And in his case, he went on to work for the company that acquired him. And he'll talk a little bit about what that was like as well. Here to tell you the entire story is Peter Kelly. Peter Kelly, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. John, thank you. Delighted to be here. Tell me a little bit about this company, Open Lane. So we were talking before we hit record that Open Lane has a big office in Toronto. Um, but for people who don't know what it is, what, what kind of company was Open Lane? Well, thank you. Yes, Open Lane, uh, we were an online used car auction. Um, okay. Now, we used cars, something everybody's familiar with, but we were not um, something that was available to retail customers. We were purely a B2B or a business-to-business auction. Um, for used cars, okay? And it's a pretty sizable industry. We started the company 20 years ago. Um, At that time, there were about 10 million cars a year being sold in this B2B or wholesale channel at physical automotive auctions, okay? And the, the, the way that market works is you've got two constituencies. You've got the sellers and the buyers. The sellers are typically commercial entities like rental car companies, automotive finance companies who might have off lease portfolios, Uh, motor manufacturers who've got fleets of used cars and other various types of vehicle fleets. Um, And then on the buy side, you had automotive dealers. So the buyers were automotive dealers. And frankly, a lot of the cars that your audience might see on a retail automotive dealers lot, uh, they've actually acquired those cars at auction, at physical auction or or today digital auctions. Um, So I mentioned, you know, 10 million units a year, $100 billion of what we call gross merchandise value, the value of all those cars annually. And we set about, uh, you know, 20 years ago when we first uh, encountered this industry, we, you know, the internet was happening. It was the dot-com era, if you remember back to 1999. And we decided we were going to be the digital disruptor of that industry. We didn't really know the word disruptor, but but we, we, we were going to move that business online. I know a guy who, who owns a car dealership and, and, you know, he would say, well, I, you know, John, I go to the auction every Thursday at three or whatever. Give me right. the specs of the car you want and I can right. get it for you at a lot less than you. This is what you're talking about, except taking this right. kludgy physical world of like <laughs> some guy showing up with a pencil and pen and, you know, to the online world. Is that basically yeah. what you did? That is it. That is it. But I will say um, those physical auctions uh, are still very, very much a viable channel. In fact, last year... Uh, um, still approximately 10 million vehicles sold through physical auctions. So it's a, uh, if you ever had the chance to go to one of those auctions, I'd recommend I it. It's a very intense experience. 
there's multiple lanes running simultaneously, so multiple cars being sold at the same time. Uh, dealers around the car. Uh, each car auction lasts maybe 40 seconds. Um, wow. Happening, happening 10 times, 10 lanes adjacent to each other. So, you know, 10 cars being sold every minute. And a mix of in-lane buyers, buyers physically at the premises. And of course, today, internet-based buyers who are looking in via video cam, webcam, and uh, the internet and buying against the in-lane buyers real time. So it's a very intense, um, it's a true marketplace really, when you think about it, of just what is the maximum value of this car? And uh, that's the business that we set about, essentially being a digital pure play, uh, you know, without the physical component. Got it, okay. So if anybody's ever used a, an online marketplace for cars, you, you kind of know what the, the, the uh, consumer experience is like, a, the business to business experience obviously is, is much different. Um, and fascinating. I've got so many questions about this. This is completely unrelated to Built to Sell Radio, but I want to know, what is the best deal you've ever seen somebody get on a car? <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're doing our job, nobody gets a deal because the market right. should bid it up to the right price. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if I could, I don't know if I've got a good answer to that, but, but I will say, um, you know, automotive dealers, it's a different experience. They're buying for inventory. They're buying at volume. Although each car is sold one at a time. Yeah. Um, I will say uh, they, you know, they work hard to get the right inventory for their dealership. They're typically as a markup, but it's probably not as much as most consumers think. Um, with, you know, the internet and price transparency, that, that margin between the retail and the wholesale price has been compressed over the 20 years that I've been in this business. And uh, consumers are getting pretty good deals out there, John. But I, I don't know if I can tell you like a screaming deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I'm just uh, curious. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so let's get into the value of this company because it's, it's interesting. Uh, did you have sort of a, uh, a, were you a car guy? Like, did you come from owning a car dealership or what, how did no, you sort of stumble no. into this? Yeah. So this, it was a question really of kind of stumbling onto this. So the backstory here was I had come over to the United States, I'm Irish originally, come over to the United States in 1997 for grad school, business school in California. And uh, of course we had two years there and uh, thinking about what, what will I do next? One of the reasons I came over was I wanted to be Silicon Valley. I was interested in technology. Um, I was interested in someday starting a business, but had no idea what or when. My background prior to that was actually construction. Hmm. Um, but uh, came to California and, you know, starting paying more attention to the internet and eBay had gone public. That was an online auction. And myself and two of my classmates, um, basically, as we were looking to start our second year, we said, why don't we just dedicate our second year to see if we can start a business right now? There is no time like the present. We're 30 years old. We could spend this next year on the golf course or we could actually do some work. Let's do some work. So we started kind of looking at opportunities. And the first opportunity we looked at, we were all, all actually of European uh, background, and we looked at an automotive idea in Europe. As we dug into that idea, we found used car auctions, right? Hmm. And the first auction we visited in the Bay Area, um, you know, I went to that, I've just described to you the, what that process is like, and we just thought the internet's going to, well, we thought the internet's going to blow up this business, but for mm -hmm. sure the internet's going to change this business. And why don't we do that. Um, so we kind of pivoted from a European-based idea to an American idea, you know, research the industry, try to figure out a go-to-market strategy, a technology, try to get some developers on board. And ultimately, you know, we were all graduating business school with a lot of uh, debt, let's say. I was we, had say. No, we, had, we had no personal capital and we also knew this was going to cost, you know, millions of dollars at least at a minimum to get the infrastructure and, 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 and everything up and running. So we went down the venture capital route and I guess we were fortunate either, you know, the mix of a good idea and the time, you know, it was pre the dot-com crash mm -hmm. um, where we were able to, you know, get a number of term sheets from Silicon Valley type, type investors and uh, get a series A and, uh, you know, build a team and, 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 and start, start going at it that way. But, but none of us actually had automotive background. And none of us were American. So we had some pretty big strikes against us uh, trying to tackle the U.S. auto market. How did you convince a VC that a bunch of European business school uh, expats were going to yeah. have any yeah. success? Well, 
I think, you know, the idea itself was pretty strong. I think people just looked at this market and thought, wow, it's a big industry. It's automotive. It's a part of the industry most people don't think of, the wholesale part. It's transaction driven. Um, so the advice, you know, frankly, our relationship with, with our initial investor was started off kind of advisory, you know, more than anything else. He hadn't yet invested. He was like, hey, can you get any more um, validation of this idea? For example, can you go out to the industry and get some former CEO of a motor company to say, hey, I know this deal and this makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. so we went after that and we did that. Can you get a couple of people from the U.S. automotive market industry to join your team? You know, those were all sort of credibility points. If we could achieve those, there'd be a greater comfort level in investing. So we were able to make all that happen. And, uh, and ultimately, when it came to the time, we actually had a number of term sheets. But because we had a track record with this investor, um, we went with that one because I guess we had worked, we felt we had worked well together and, and uh, you know, he had kind of coached us a little bit, frankly. So, so that's, a, that's a series A. So I, I know nothing about this world because I've never gone down this route, but, but yeah. I understand there's, you know, there's a, you know, a friends and family round of investment and then there might be a yeah. seed round. Is a seed round synonymous with an A round? Are those two synonyms for one well, another? Or, or it's, a, it's, evolved, it's evolved a little bit over the years, John. Um, Today, typically, uh, people do seed rounds before their Series A. Okay. That was, that was less the case back then. So the Series A was a, um, it was a $5 million round. We raised $5 million of capital. And for that, our investors took, you know, give or take 30 plus percent of the company, right? And then founders had some and uh, obviously a, a, a decent chunk allocated for future employees. We knew we had to hire a lot of people. Right. So it was that kind of almost like a third, a third, a third split. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was the Series A. But today, I think seed rounds are, are pretty common, although most seed rounds might be as big as our Series A. Right. You know, it's, yeah. the world's changed. Right. So your calculus is is what? How are you? I mean, you're giving up a third of the company. How how do you and your two partners get comfortable with I, that idea? We didn't have a whole lot of other courses of action. I think bootstrapping was not a possibility, you know, um, although, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe, you know, I, I, we didn't really have the depth, the network of our friends and family to, you know, um, you know, pull together a few millions of dollars to, to get this to, to its first sort of milestone, get, get technology built, get some customers on the platform. Um, and again, in a B2B setting, think of our customers, you know, motor companies, banks, credibility was very important. So being able to say, we've got institutional backing, We've got, you know, a substantial amount of capital on, on the balance sheet. Uh, we felt it would help us. So let's get into the business itself. So, so you're growing this. You've got this $5 million bucks, which allows you to build the technology and hire some people. Um, the business model, how are, are you making a little cut from each car that sells in the platform? Or do people subscribe? Yeah. Or what's the, how do you make money? Yeah, the business model is transaction-driven. So okay. it's a mix of sell fees and buy fees. Okay. Seller sells a car, pays a fee. Buyer buys a car, pays a fee. Ah, uh, the double-ended marketplace. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, principally, that's principally the model. And then we also made some revenue if the buyer wanted us to move the car to their dealership. Okay. So we had transport revenue. But in the, that transport revenue, most of that was ultimately paid to a trucking company to move the car. Right. Okay, so, so we had kind of high, high margin transaction fees which was, you know, 60, 70% of the revenue and then transportation um, revenue, which was maybe the balance um, and a double-sided marketplace. So very difficult early years getting sellers and buyers and it's the chicken mm -hmm. and egg problem. How do you make that work? Um, and, um, and, you know, honestly, fairly naive, you know, young entrepreneurs learning an industry, learning, uh, how to build a company for the first time. So, you know, some mistakes along the way. I, I often say we had a lot of ups and downs, but we thankfully we had more ups than downs, <laughs> right? And, and we, we were able to find a way to grow the business. But, but frankly, you know, very early on, within a year of our incorporating the company, we hit the dot-com crash, right? Which was a very difficult time. Uh, we were fortunate. We had just raised our Series B financing right before that. So we came out of the gate strong, got a customer on board, started selling cars. Everything was looking great raised a series B, which was a substantial amount of money, north of $20 million. Hmm. Okay. Um, 
which actually saved our company in the end of the day. And then the dot-com crash happened. Once the dot-com crash happened, everybody ran away from companies like us, okay? You know, the motor companies didn't want to take our calls. We were just another dot-com that was going to go out of business. But to be clear, right? the investors can't claw that money back no, all no. of a sudden now that the, that, the, you know, the landscape has changed. No. That money was in, that money was in. What we did was we really battened down the hatches. You know, we basically said, hey, our, our go-to-market strategy um, is not working, okay? Or is not gonna get there fast enough. What wasn't uh, working it, about it? Um, I think our just, our technology expense was fine. We got the platform built. And I think a strength of our company through its entire history has been the strength of the technology. It's been really strong. We've been a technology leader. Um, but I think the, the sales and marketing expense of getting customers on board, uh, the sales cycle on the seller side was extremely long, you know, multi-year in some cases. Um, and on the buy side, uh, dealers were certainly prepared to do business with us, but we heard a lot, hey, I need to kick the tires, I need to see the car, I need to smell the car, I need to know if it's a smoker car. Um, and if you think back to those days, John, it was pre-smartphone, right? Uh, a lot of dealers were dialing in on dial-up modem type connections and you know the internet wasn't wasn't you know it wasn't you go into a lot of dealerships it wasn't an easy place to pitch a use an online used car auction right so all, 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 the, all those things were, were were part of uh the reality and i think what we had to decide was where can we be successful and what we realized was so we we narrowed our vision our scope we said listen we can't change this entire industry but there is a segment of cars here off-lease cars, all right? Where the seller is the motor manufacturer and the buyer is, is, is the dealer of that brand. So it's, I'll, I'll say Volkswagen selling off-lease Volkswagen cars to Volkswagen dealers. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot, of tr a lot of trust in that relationship already. They know the car, be, they know brand, yeah. They know the brand, they know the car, uh, they know the packages, the equipment, and we can service that market. Um, so we ended up, uh, really focusing on off-lease. And we ended up capturing, I'll say about half of the global OEM brands into programs like that. We call them private label programs where the brand is selling its best vehicles to its franchise dealer network. Peter, and and that, ena that enabled us to, to survive. Fantastic. I love it. And I wonder if there was any discussion about Volkswagen saying, hang on a minute, we're Volkswagen. Uh, why don't we just create our own marketplace? Oh yeah, oh yeah. 10, yeah. 10, yeah. Dealer, 10 uh, developers in a room somewhere and, and create their own yeah. marketplace. So yeah. how did you think through that strategic issue? Um, well, a number of OEMs did that, right? Mm -hmm. A number of OEMs okay. did that, yeah. And we, in fact, one of the big ones did that initially. And one of, part of our pitch was, hey, you see what this brand over here is doing? That's gonna take you two years to do, but if you sign up with us, we can have you there in three months, right? right? So your dealers are starting to talk about that this other brand has got this offering. To get that through your IT shop is gonna take you a long time. How about we accelerate this, this path for you? So in a way it became a, a, um, a sales tool in a way, or you know, an angle. Um, but, uh, you know, different OEMs had different points of view and, and we had to convince them, uh, and again, lengthy sales cycle, like I talked to you about, but, but we were fortunate. We got some OEMs on quickly and then good reference accounts and others saw that they were having a good experience and, you know, uh, it kind of built on itself it little by little. So you yeah. credit this, this private label program really getting you through those years, the, yeah. the .com. Uh, exactly bust, et cetera. Yeah. And, uh, and of course the 20 million bucks, which yeah. is yeah. a nice war chest as it were. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then we, we grew the business. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm short circuiting here a little bit, but over say the 10 year period, um, which takes us up really to the great recession. Um, uh, we had grown the business at that point to about 350 employees, uh, selling around 350,000 cars a year on our platform um, with, again, five or so global OEM accounts as our principal seller customers and then their franchise dealer network as our buyers. Um, about $100 million in revenue and profitable. That was where we found ourselves in sort of 2008. And at that point, you know, generating a positive, generating a positive cash flow um, 
and really kind of expanding our vision to say, okay, now let's go back and do what we said we were going to do back in 1999. Now let's take it out of this private label world and kind of, you know, um, go after the broader marketplace, not just off lease cars. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was 2008-ish when the economy right. started to shake. Peter, let me, before we go further, let me ask you a question. Um, and if it's too personal, you, you can just tell me where to go. You and your two founders um, were admittedly young guys, new to the United States, um, didn't have a lot of money, had an idea, raised some money. But over time, you, you became obviously very, you know, very successful, 300 employees, you're doing, you know, uh, 100 million in annual sales. How does, like, are you able to, to adjust your personal compensation such that it's commensurate with what, what a market rate salary would be for someone like that? I'm, what I'm getting at is, are you continually to underpay yourself all these years because you're the founder yeah. or are you able to kind of true up that, that comp? Well, there was certainly some chewing up that happened for sure. Um, but I think there also was some element of, Hey, you're in it for the, you're in it for the, the payday, the exit, right. And you're, you're not in it to maximize your near term compensation here. Um, I will say just a, a couple of things on my two co-founders. Um, and there were some other individuals on that in a very early stage as well, but, um, I, I was not the initial CEO. I became the CEO by the end. And my other two co-founders ended up moving on over the course of those 10, 10 or 11 years. Um, you know, for different reasons, they both went on to do entrepreneurial things. They both um, had other uh, successful companies and successful exits uh, and retained obviously their ownership in, in, in open lane, uh, but they ceased to have a sort of an active role um, at some point in the 10 year process. On your, on your second question of, uh, the compensation again our board was good you know that was a discussion every year our compensation definitely increased but but um i guess when we did ultimately sell the company um my compensation sort of reset to what a you know public uh you know a sizable north american company would value an executive uh, role like mine at right so there, there was a reset at that point yeah, it. Uh, I don't know why it was. It came to mind, but I. But I. You know, here you are building this great company, and I. I, I was curious to know if you were. You were being sort of compensated along the way for it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get through. Yeah. Let's get through to two thousand eight, the Great Recession. What was the What was the business doing? How was it affected by that? Was that around the time that you decided to sell, or what was going on? Well, I think the Great Recession was kind of a triggering event in the decision, although the timing was a little different. And I'll explain that here in a second, because we didn't sell the company until 2011. Um, so, but, you know, beginning of 2008, we're feeling pretty good. You know, business is profitable, got all these employees, selling 250,000 cars, and we're expanding our vision to go after a bigger opportunity. We're actually starting to burn put more cash on the table, more chips on the table, if you like, to go after a bigger payday. But then what happened sort of in parallel with that is the economy started to weaken, right? And we could see that signal uh, in, in sort of by mid 2008, um, we noticed we were starting to miss some numbers. Uh, dealers weren't buying cars at the same rate. Uh, and you know, the automotive industry is kind of an early warning predictor to some extent, because if a consumer is not feeling confident, the first thing they'll hold off purchasing is the next car, car, right? Yeah. Um, so we could see something was afoot. And of course, then by late 2008, you know, we had Lehman bankruptcies and all that sort of stuff. Um, so we kind of pivoted on our strategy. We said, we said, we need to sort of rein this in. We're not going to burn all this cash again. So we reined in expenses and said, let's figure out what's going on. And then what, what actually went on is if you think of retail automotive, retail automotive sales were basically cut in half by the great recession. They went from 17 million a year, new cars to about 10. Wow. And then, and then it was a credit crisis. So leasing as a percentage of cars purchased went from 30% to like 17% or something. So, so basically lease originations got cut in half or more, right? Now that didn't affect us right at that moment because we're selling off lease cars. We're selling cars that are three years old, but I could see that our, cust our core customers volume, because they share with us their lease origination data, so we can service their account, that their volume was gonna get cut in half three years from now. 
right? right? So I could see very clearly that our business, which by and large had been growing for 12 years, was now, at least transaction-wise, was going to get cut probably in half. And that, was going to be a ver and that was going to be a prolonged, it wasn't going to be just for one quarter. It was going to be for a period of a few years because the recession was a deep trough. It took time to come back out of, right? And this created a dilemma. Now we were lucky. We had some advance warning on that, right? A lot of companies had to live that in real time. We had a bit of a lag, but it made me question, okay, what do I want to do here? Um, and the, the two choices are, you know, ride it out, batten down the hatches, um, or consider strategic options. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the other thing that was playing on my mind at that point, John, was competition had increased. Okay. When we came out first, we were the first mover. We were the first to market with this idea, with this technology, but ultimately some of the established players had kind of come in and said, we can do that too. So we were facing increased competition and I, I was concerned, were we going to win any more of these big global accounts? And conversely, if we lost one of them in the midst of this trough, we'd be in a world of hurt, let's just say. You had five, right? And five we, made up. We had about five, yeah. And our biggest was probably 30% of our volume, you mm. know, 30% of our revenue, you know? So it was just, I, I was, I had some concern, let's just say. 12 years in, you have something of value, right? But you haven't monetized it. And now you've got a real difficult period ahead. And at the same time, there was, we had had inbound strategic interest, you know, in the, in the initial years, you know, a number of players saying, Hey, would you, would you consider an acquisition? Um, and I guess at that point, we, we also had, this is where the, some different opinions on the board, you know, one board member in particular saying, you know, this is the time to, this is the time to take, take the chips off the table. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the others kind of saying, this looks tough, but let's just ride it out. We're good. We got plenty of cash. We're good. You know, um, but th those things were kind of playing in. And then, you know, other factors is first management team. I, I felt the management team was a good team. Uh, they would probably back either course, but I, I felt they wouldn't mind a little liquidity, you know, because <laughs> they had uh, some shares clearly. Oh yeah. 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 And I, frankly, probably half our employees had shares, right? So there's a broader audience uh, with shares and, um, and then personally, you know, 12 years in, uh, I had a young family at this point, three young kids, uh, probably all under the age of two or something. Um, <laughs> and as I said, you know, you've created something of value, but it's not liquid today. And it's probably not going to be liquid for the next few years, unless you do something sort of sooner, because you, you have to get, you have to cho choose, choose what you're going to do here. And, uh, you know, there's a quote, I'm Irish, uh, there's a, a movie about an Irish band, The Commitments, and the, the, tagline on the, movie, the tagline on the movie poster is, they had nothing, but they were willing to risk it all. Well, it's kind of like the entrepreneur's uh, dilemma in a way, because when you have nothing, it actually kind of is easy to risk it all. You're just risking your time and your personal capital. Um, but when you have something that you know is a value and could change your life, but it could conceivably go to zero, that's a tougher risk to take. Right. And I think that's, that's kind of the dilemma I have. I'm so happy you brought that up. What a great quote. And it's so true, right? Yeah. It's yeah. so true. Yeah. How did your co-founders who were no longer active in the business feel at this point? You know, one of them was on the board um, and he and I had a good relationship. He was, you know, let's roll the dice. Let's, let's go for it. We don't need to sell, you know? Um, but again, you know, he'd had a couple of other successes under his belt. He had diversified his portfolio a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. so we might've had a different point of view. I'm not saying he was wrong. It was a perfectly valid point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, maybe there was a greater value realizing opportunity. Maybe, I don't know. We, we will, we'll never know, but, uh, but he was, uh, he was probably more in the camp of state of course. But at the end of the day, the board was very supportive. They were like, listen, Peter, you're the CEO. We're not looking to put a different CEO in here. You know, there's either of these choices has pros and cons. Here's my opinion, but ultimately we want to back you. That was kind of uh, the situation. And actually, that, you know, honestly caused me a lot of sleepless, uh, sleepless nights at the time, you know, just to thinking, what do I do here? And, you know, I, I sometimes I may be guilty of overthinking things sometimes, but, uh, 
yeah, yeah, that was the situation. What was on the pros and cons list for you at that time? Those nights you were sleeping or not sleeping, <laughs> what were you thinking about? Um, let's say the pros, the pros of doing a deal. Um, I knew there was a party out there that the company that acquired us, Car Auction Services, that it was a really good strategic fit. Um, they had been making investments in their digital platforms, but just not having the right sort of success with that. Um, they could really leverage our platform that they would buy us. And it wasn't a question of let's shut down everything you have and move these customers over. It was more like, let's take everything you have and shut everything we have down, mm -hmm. right? And move our customers to you. That was uh, the scenario, right? Um, so in that scenario, you know, the idea that this code that our engineers have been writing goes on, right? That the employees who are here, if they want to continue on, it's going to be different, but they'll have that opportunity, at least most of them, to take this business to the next level. Um, as I mentioned, this company had customers that I've been pitching for years that we could never get to make the shift. But if we did this deal, it would just become a no-brainer. We'd just migrate them across to the system, right? Um, financial liquidity, right? Um, and I'll say the other thing, and this maybe gets, we'll talk about this further in the conversation here too. I also thought, hey, this will have been a pretty good run. You know, start a company, grow it for 10 or 12 years, sell it, exit, move on personally, do something else with some success under my belt. That'll be, I'll be in a good place. I'll be in my early 40s. I'm probably a very marketable person, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley uh, with, that, with, that, with that track record. So those are the pros. The cons were, um, hey, giving up on this, uh, you know, independent, go it alone kind of uh, part of our history, right? This digital disruptor from outside the industry, changing things from the outside. Um, are we leaving money on the table? Are we getting full value here on this price? You know, um, when we started the company, frankly, our preferred exit was public company. We wanted to IPO this company. Right. And we felt the industry was maybe big enough to support an, a public company like us. Um, and we hadn't got to that point. You know, we were, I felt we were close to that had the recession not happened. We were, had a lot of the fundamentals heading in the right way. But, but, but you know, that, that changed things. So um, I think it was, am I, am I giving up on something here? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and also when our two venture capital investors that had been frankly, so great to work with, we're both had a preference to stay the course. You know, I kind of wanted to, to do that for them. Right. Them. You know? yeah. 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 I wanted to, I wanted to uh, be that guy in a way, but at some level, the personal side of it and just saying, you know what, I can take this outcome, but I can't take is a zero outcome. Try to ride this out, lose a customer, have whole, this whole thing turned to zero, you know? And, uh, I was a little fearful of that. You know, yeah, I do. I think it's, uh, I think, you know, we've done almost 300 episodes and you, you have absolutely the most eloquent way of putting it. So uh, I think a lot of people feel it, but you've done a tremendous job of articulating the idea of going to zero, right? Uh, that it all could go to zero uh, without yeah. much, um, you know, it happens. So, it happen. uh, yeah. Yeah. So let's get into the actual transaction itself. So, so I'm assuming you took the business to market. Did you hire like a investment banker or what, 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 well, did, what was the process? Yeah. Like? So the process uh, was an interesting process. So in some respects, it was fairly straightforward. Um, you know, as I mentioned, John, we had some strategic outreach from various parties, three or four parties over the years. Right. So we kind of knew who the four most likely strategic buyers were, certainly the three. Mm -hmm. um, so the initial outreach really was through a board member. One of our board members sort of had a conversation with a few of those companies. Mm -hmm. um, and let's just say that out of that discussion, one of those companies sent in an LOI, sort of a, uh, something for a board to react to. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I sort of stayed out of that initial part of the dialogue. Um, at that point, you know, once we had something to react to, we had a debate among the board. And um, I kind of signals that, you know, this price was in a range that I was prepared to contemplate, you know, um, it was a little bit low for what I'd like it to be, but 
it also was a price that deserved consideration. We, we got an investment bank in at that point. Okay. When you say um, a little bit low, Peter, what, what, um, like what sort of valuation benchmarks were you going by? What, what is there anything in the industry? Are marketplaces generally? Well, yeah, you know, we were looking, there wasn't a lot of, there not, weren't a lot of public internet marketplaces. And then with our dynamics, you know, um, given the fact we were profitable, but we weren't going to be trending up the next few years, you know, it was a complicated one to value, but, um, we looked at EBITDA multiples, revenue multiples. Um, we looked at the established players in the industry that are, were public comps. They tended to be fairly low, you know, nine, nine, ten EBITDA kind of multiples. Nine times uh, EBITDA, yeah. EBITDA, yeah. Um, and uh, the the number I think we were looking at at the time uh, per this LOI was about fifteen times EBITDA. So it's not a bad number, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then if you think that that EBITDA is likely to shrink, you know, in 2012 and 2013, perhaps, maybe it was even better number. But um, I was kind of looking just at the absolute dollars as well, the amount of money invested, the kind of return our investors, shareholders are going to get, the financial investors. And, um, you know, the deal ended up being a $250 million deal. Okay. Is that right? Um, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, or maybe a shade under that 240 something. And uh, I'd have loved if we could have had a 300, you know, I think a 300 I'd have been like, you know, feeling really good about everything. But at 250, I felt, you know what? It's, it's not a bad deal. It's not a bad deal. And that's kind of where I, where I ended up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so the original offer on the LOI was around 15 times EBITDA. You thought it was a shade low, but still worth talking about. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So we, so, so at that point we hired an investment bank, uh, Montgomery and company. We reached out to a number of the other strategics. Um, and at that point, I think we got one other formal written offer came in. And Peter, um, when you said the other strategics, are you referring to the other two of the three that you, that your board member yeah. referred to or more broadly? Uh, we kept a fairly narrow process. So mm. we reached out to maybe three, three companies or maybe four in total, certainly three. Um, and the other reason we felt we had to keep these very, very close and under the radar screen. We have, uh, you know, we were a small company with these massive, you know, global OEM clients that we just didn't want to unsettle. We had deals. We were in discussions on renewal. We were pitching new customers. We didn't want to, you know, take any opportunity away. So we felt we had to keep this very close. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of keep it below the radar and move, you know, make, make decisions quickly and move quickly. So, uh, but in any case, we did get a second offer. Then we evaluated both offers. We decided that the first company was the most credible buyer and maybe the best strategic fit. So we, we focused on trying to negotiate that to the upper end of the range they had given us, which they, they moved to the upper end of the range. It was a narrow range, but they moved to the upper end of their range. So at that point, we kind of, um, you know, we made our decision. I guess the dilemma, the dilemma at that point, there was one other course of action I could have taken, which was, you know, one of our financial investors purely was interested in an exit. Um, we had the possibility of potentially recapitalizing the company, allowing him to have his exit and have the other investors essentially, you know, buy out his share, you know, and that would keep us. So it was do that or do the sale. And, um, like I say, ultimately, I kind of came down on, let's do the sale. Let's do the sale. And uh, so we signed the term sheet. Uh, board approved the term sheet. We signed it. And uh, then we entered a period of, you know, the purchase agreement and the diligence, right? And as you know, as I've heard from your, your other uh, interviewees, <laughs> that's a, an intense process, uh, which it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the, the purchase agreement... I recall that being quite difficult. You know, we got into a lot of thorny negotiations on who bears this risk and potential lawsuit here and, you know, risk, you know, it's ultimately about allocation of risk and, mm -hmm. and what's market and, you know, a lot of lawyers involved. So that was a tough process. Um, also had to get some of the, the team under the, under the covers on this to facilitate the, to enable the diligence to happen. Uh, so I had to kind of go through that. Um, so that took, I don't know, 60, 90 days. 
What was it out of interest? What was the rank and file employee, not your executives who, who would have been more involved, but you know, the, the manager level person that had a bit of equity, what was their reaction when you let them know you had a, a firm offer? Well, they did not know at this point, they didn't know until the deal was announced. Okay. I see. Um, so we had to, again, until the, until the definitive purchase agreement was signed, that's the, that's the date we announced, right? And then there, uh, but so what, um, you know, we, we thought about how do we communicate with the team? The management team was all in the, in the loop at that point. Um, we had multiple offices, so we had to kind of, you know, travel around to those offices and let people know. Um, there was a certain amount of fear, you know, we're being bought by a big company. Are all our jobs going away? Mm-hmm. That was the first, uh, the first kind of concern. That's where everybody goes right out of the chute. Um, and I, I tried to reassure people, and I think it was possible to do so because I was able to say, listen, we're being bought because we're the best in the world of what we do. And this company is looking to build on what we have built here. So the opportunity to be part of this story remains for hopefully all of you if, if you want to take it, right? It's going to be a little different. Culture might change a little bit. Um, I'm still here. Management team's still here. And, uh, you know, we go on on that basis. And uh, I think broad, by and large, that was successful. You know, frankly, some of the functions like HR and legal, they, some functions got consolidated up to the corporate headquarters. But most of our, like our tech team stayed in place, our customer service teams, our sales teams stayed in place. And, um, you know, delighted to say, you know, eight years on from that, so many of those people are still here um, and have had new opportunities you know, in their careers through the acquisition, it's kind of gratifying. Now, of course, some left too, right? Some said, you know, the culture's not for me. I like the startup, blah, 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 right? So it's been, it's been all of the above. What was the strategic fit? Uh, I'd be curious to know what it was with your ultimate acquirer, uh, Car Auction Services. Uh, like, why did they want to buy you? Uh, they could see that the future of the industry was digital. You what know, what digital, did they do, by the way? Did they do these physical auctions? Yeah, physical yeah. Auctions? I see. Yeah. Car Auction Services owned um, uh, one of the two large physical auction chains. Uh, okay. They also owned a salvage auction chain, um, uh, which has recently been spun out as its own public company. Um, and they were, you know, attempting to make that transition into this digital world. They were spending a lot of money on their platforms and having some success, but not having the success that their investment demanded. So they, they felt, um, you know, build versus buy, I guess, from their vantage point, could they build everything we have themselves? It'd probably take them a few years by which stage we would have moved on to something different or could they buy it? And they, uh, they wanted to buy, right? Um, but actually that informed their whole thinking around the acquisition. They, again, they were buying us not just for the customers, but for our technology and for our people. So they wanted to retain, in fact, they wanted our company to be part of transforming their culture, you know, hmm. to, to, to kind of put a, you know, they, they recognized the world was changing and I give their CEO, Jim Hallett, a lot of credit. You know, he, he is not, uh, does not have a digital background himself, but he is an entrepreneur. His history is one of entrepreneurship. And he could see this world was changing. And how does he get this large company that he commands to change with these times? And he felt, let's do an acquisition like this to catalyze that change in my company. Fantastic. Uh, If we go forward, uh, were you as part of this being asked to stay on? Was there a kind of an earn out component or what was your personal sort of uh, position in this? Yeah, so that's a good question. And uh, I mentioned Jim Hallett, the CEO. So in the diligence process, I, uh, Jim and I met for one day in Toronto, where you're, where you're living right now, ah. at the airport. At the airport there in Toronto, we met for a day. And uh, I remember Jim saying at the time, this is the only piece of diligence I'm doing on this deal. He wanted to spend a, con- a day in the conversation with me. And he basically said, Peter, are you going to stay the course on this deal? You know, we're buying the company for the people. You're the person in charge, are you in or out? And I said, Jim, you can count on me to make the deal a success for your company, right? And then to be clear, I said, what that means, Jim, is you can count on me for two years. You can count on me, I'm gonna work hard, I'm gonna make this a success for at least two years and then we'll see what happens, 
right? Um, and I, you know, that was kind of a handshake agreement. And then coupled with that, um, you know, Jim decided, I think, uh, which I appreciated was, uh, put me on the management team of the company as a direct report to him, kind of the digital guy on the management team, right? Uh, so I'm in at a high level in a public company. And um, obviously threw a lot of stock options and stuff my way to kind of make it financially interesting as well, right? You know, and change, reset the comp and all that sort of stuff, right? Um, so that was all part of that deal. And so then what happened? I went home to my wife and said, two years, I'm out. <laughs> okay. We're on and the beach, we'll honey. Take, we'll take a trip around the world and we'll figure out what to do after that. Um, but, you know, so what exactly happened is, um, you know, we got the deal done and we all got busy with the next chapter. Right. And started integrating these platforms, migrating these customers, business volumes came back. We got through that trough. It kind of just, it seemed like a long time looking ahead from the rearview mirror. It looked like a blip mm -hmm. and our business started growing like crazy again. Right. And, uh, you know, I also found, Hey, I'm, I'm enjoying this, you know, uh, being, this is a big company, but when you're at the management level of this company, it feels like a small company. Hmm. You know, you're in the in with the executive team. You can make decisions quickly. It's a pretty entrepreneurial place. Um, I'm actually having fun here, right? And um, you know, I, I will say, John, I attempted on a few occasions to step back a little bit and say, let this baby walk walk by himself. You know, hmm. um, but I always find I wanted to jump in and catch it, right? And uh, you know, I, I felt I. It, it would do better when I was there. So I could see that I was adding value. Um, frankly, the stock options, uh, the company car did very well stock-wise. So those became, you know, it became kind of golden handcuffs in a way for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, uh, I, got, I could invest a lot more money if I stay one more year. Um, all that kind of stuff. So they all played a role. But I think at some level, you know, the experience of continuing the transformation of the industry, um, working with a group of people that I enjoy in an industry that, you know, I've now 15, now 20 years experience of, or maybe I just got to sign up that I'm a used car guy. You know, maybe that's who I am at this point. You know? <laughs> that's what the headline of this episode is going to be. <laughs> Peter Kelly, the world's greatest used car salesman. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, all of these things and, 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 and not walking away from the financial side, not walking away from the financial side, but, uh, um, yeah, it's been a journey. You know, I had to go back and tell my wife more than one occasion that uh, we still went around the world. We made it a three-month trip, not a year trip. Um, so, you know, uh, but, but it's been fun. It's been fun. Tell me, um, do you mind sharing with our listeners uh, where you are and, and sort of how long you've been there? And, and I'd be curious to know um, how your wife's feeling about that, because that's obviously a big change for your family. Yeah, so, well, what ultimately happened is um, I ended up taking on the role of president of CAR, okay? So seven years later. Um, the the so company that acquired yours, so. The company that acquired us, yeah, and to put it in perspective, CAR, public company, uh, we got about 15,000 employees uh, selling about three and a half million cars a year with about two and a half billion in revenue, so it's- a, Don't screw it up, man, that sounds like an important job. <laughs> Better not, better not. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I always, you know, talking to Jim, I said, figure out a succession plan that, that doesn't involve me. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, between Jim and the board, you know, this opportunity presented itself. And when faced with it, I thought, you know, I'm going to regret if I say no to this. You know, how often am I going to get this opportunity to run a company like this in an industry that I know with customers that I know with a team that I like? Um, now, that's going to involve having to move my family and my wife. So maybe let's go and have that conversation. Uh, so, uh, you know, we did that. And I guess the net result of that is we're out here in, in Carmel, Indiana. You must be a good salesman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say I'm, I'm greatly appreciative of the support of my wife. She, she is really, um, you know, taking one for the team to some extent and putting her career 
uh, an opportunity secondary uh, to mine. Uh, uh, but hopefully also, you know, the kids are at an age where hopefully it'll be good for the family too. So that's, that's the process we're going through. But yeah, we've, we've relocated, no longer a Silicon Valley guy. And uh, out here in, in, in our beautiful new head office in Carmel. Yeah. Well, real estate's probably a little bit more uh, reasonable, I'm guessing. A little, a little bit more for your money out here, that's true. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I just can't thank you enough for being so candid and sharing so many stories. Um, is there, a, is there an, a, kind of a, an ask or, or a place that uh, you, you want people to go? I'm sure people are going to want to kind of connect on LinkedIn. Are, are you active on LinkedIn? What's the best yeah. You know, or there's a, do you want to send people to a website? What, where, where oh, um, well, I am on LinkedIn. Uh, Peter Kelly is the name. If you look up Peter Kelly car auction services, you'll probably find me on there. Um, and then the company is car auction services. That's with a K. So if you go to car auction services.com or the stock ticker is K A R New York stock exchange, you'll find plenty of information about our company there. Um, but yeah, any of those, any of those. Great. Well, listen, Peter, it was a great to meet you. A continued success. We'll be watching from the sidelines to see, uh, see how the car, the, car, uh, the car business continues. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, John. It was great talking to you also. Have a great rest of the day. Yeah. You Thank too. you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry, Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.